Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have James Banner Jr. on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Being a Historian, An Introduction to the Professional World of History. I was once the director of undergraduate studies here at the History Department at the University of Iowa, And the question that I got most frequently from parents of prospective students was, uh, what can my son or daughter do with a history major? Now, this is a very good question, and I tried to answer it as best I could. I would have done a much better job if I had read Jim's terrific book, Being a Historian, because he describes many, many things that historians can do and should do. He has a very Catholic, I guess I would say, understanding of the historical disciplines. In his mind, historians are not just people like me who teach in history departments. They are people who work with historical materials generally and a bit more specifically in places like museums and in the halls of government and in libraries and archives and lots of other places where people think about the past. Now, of course, he also has a lot to say about the profession of history, that is, history as it is practiced in the Ivy Tower. And what he has to say there is very interesting as well. In any event, I enjoyed reading the book and I enjoyed talking to Jim today. And without further delay, here's the interview. Hi, Jim. Hello, Marshall. How are you today? Fine, thanks. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Today we're talking with Jim Banner Jr. about his book, Being a Historian, an Introduction to the Professional World of History, Uh, Having read this book, I can tell you that it's more or less spot on by my lights. I have been a historian for 25 years, and uh, pretty much every word of it rang true to me. I think it would be of of great value to people who are both in the what we call profession or discipline, we'll talk about that later, and people outside it who don't know a lot about what historians, again, both professional and the discipline itself, do. This is a terrific introduction to that kind of thing. Um, I happen to be thinking about this question myself, so it was of um, particular interest to me while I was reading it. And uh, I want to congratulate Jim on the, uh, on the publication of the book. Jim, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a, uh, I'm a hybrid historian. I was an academic uh, for the first 20, 25 years of my professional life. I taught at Princeton. And then I went on to set up an institution here in Washington where I'm from which I'm uh, now speaking, and um, that didn't work out terribly well, but I remained in Washington and um, was a book publisher and a foundation executive and continued to serve as a historian. I was teaching um, occasional graduate uh, courses at universities around here, and now at this point in my life, I am 
involved in some uh, projects regarding history, and I'm doing a lot of writing and um, editing of uh, books of essays. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is a, the short course on a long and illustrious career. You're too modest. I won't, I won't make you go into the details of it. But... Please don't. <laughs> okay, I won't. <laughs> no. So tell us uh, how you came to write this book. Why, why did you write this book? Well, I, uh, this is 2012. I have uh, been a professional historian since the year 1960, so it's over a half century. It's, it, I shudder to think of that, that I have been a historian of one kind or another. And I am of the disposition and have the interest that I'm not only interested in the past itself, but I'm also interested in institutions and how they function and um, in the circumstances in which people do their work, and uh, so I sort of naturally fell into keeping alive an interest in uh, history, um, history departments, um, larger discipline, my colleagues, the practices that historians use, and so on. And I thought that after 50 years of a historian, um, it might be useful um, to others as well as to myself, because when one writes a book, one is always thinking and recognizing things in one's mind that one didn't know was there, Mm -hmm. thought it would be useful to try to draw together my reflections and um, my optimism about the discipline, um, my concerns, uh, my frustrations, and to put them in a form that would be useful to my colleagues. And um, if it came to that, and I would certainly welcome it, if uh, people who are not historians who want to learn something about history itself and what historians do, I'll put it together in a form that they would find interesting. Mm-hmm. I can easily see people that are interested in thinking about careers as historians, for example, history majors, uh, re- reading the book and profiting greatly because... Well, you know, I think that's right. Yeah. I, I, I think the, the, the core audience of the book, but by no means the exclusive one, are aspiring historians, and whether those are juniors and seniors, say, in college, whether they are graduate students who are just entering the serious professional study of history at the university departments that must train them, um, those are really the people that I have in mind. That said, I like to think that my more gray-bearded colleagues, um, and that goes for women as well as men, um, uh, would benefit from the book because I take up some issues that are rarely discussed among historians. And the book also tries to do something that, is rarely done, and in this form, possibly never, and that is we don't, uh, among historians, have occasional, periodic, um, every 10-year assessments of the state of the discipline. In other words, uh, what is the health of, uh, of history and the way it's practiced and its institutions and the preparation for it by uh, for younger people and so on. And, and this book serves as an assessment uh, for my colleagues' benefit um, of the state of the discipline. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. I don't, I mean, since history, uh, like almost all disciplines, is very decentralized, there, there really is very little interest in that kind of discussion of the entire project. And well, that, uh, it, it, that's right. And, and um, I, I gather from what you've said that you agree with me. That I consider that to be a sad state of yeah, affairs. Yeah, I do too. I mean, well, we're not trained to be institutionalists, and certainly in my professional lifetime, a lot of the interest um, in the past has had to do with non-institutional, political, policy, diplomatic-related uh, subjects, which is what I, at least, and I'm considerably older than you, uh, cut my eye teeth uh, on in school and college and then in graduate school. People have been interested in in uh, African-American history, women's history, gay and lesbian history, social history from the bottom up, um, a whole, you know, the history of emotions, uh, uh, the history of industrial devices, I mean, all sorts of things, which, and I think it's just been wonderful, uh, that previously weren't considered to be legitimate topics of historical uh, research and reflection. And we've we've gained immeasurably by the new knowledge we have of a huge uh, set of issues that no one thought about when I was when I was beginning study as a historian. Mm-hmm. But what it has done, it's turned us away from an interest in institutions and policies and so on, which is what people of my generation sort of found natural. And I think what has happened because of the change in the subjects that historians pursue is that. Uh, history has has drawn people with different interests and different temperaments, uh, different personalities, and they are not people who are interested in 
in policy and in politics and in uh, political parties and elections and presidents and so on, despite the popularity of those subjects in, in the general public, um, there are people who are interested in softer and different and um, and more social history-oriented topics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kind of, I, don't, I don't know if most people know this, but there's kind of a representational principle now in operation in history uh, in, in that the big history departments always have to have one of X, Y, and Z. And if they don't, well, then they're not big history departments. Well, that's true, but of course they can't. Yeah. And uh, history departments have always had to be selective. Now they have to be even more so. Um, um, so that means that whereas all history departments in the United States have historians of the United States and of Western Europe, um, they now have some of Asia, mm-hmm. Africa, but also, of course, of topics that are not, um, they are not defined geographically. Um, historians of, say, um, of women, mm-hmm. or of African Americans, and uh, or of gender, um, or uh, of technology, uh, for example. So no department, even the largest department, can't carry, cover all of these subjects. One of the things that has happened over the past, oh, I would say two decades, hasn't gone far enough in my estimation, but a good start has been made, is to employ in history departments people who are not so much subject-defined, but are defined by the kind of history that they do or that they're prepared to help young people learn about, and we call that public history. Mm -hmm. So most large departments now have one or two people who practice public history Mm -hmm. and who train young people for that part of their discipline. And um, so uh, while it's difficult, if not impossible, to cover everything, um, there is really taking all Ph.D.-granting history departments as a total, there's a, there's a huge diversity of subjects now being taught, and anybody interested in a particular subject can always find a senior and very well-reputed and effective historian uh, able to teach it to her or to him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. True enough. Um, we've already started to talk about the content of the book, uh, and one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, was it at the very beginning of it, you, you, you talk about the difference between what you call, a, and correct me if I'm wrong, a, a historical discipline and the historical profession. What mm-hmm. is the distinction there? Well, um, I'm not only talking about the discipline of history. I'm talking about disciplines uh, generally. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a discipline of physics and a discipline of musicology and a discipline of, of uh, philosophy and sociology and so on. And they are fields of intellectual endeavor that somehow, and of course the lines uh, at the margins are always obscure, that are demarcated by the particular, uh, not only the particular subject, but the, the methods that are used to pursue the subject. So the discipline of history is pursued by historians um, differently than the discipline of biology is pursued by biologists. So it's an intellectual universe that can be fairly understandably demarcated from other intellectual universes and fields of of intellectual discourse. So those are disciplines. But now those disciplines can be practiced in many professions. Um, Historians have long used the shorthand, the history profession, to designate what historians participate in. Um, But that, it seems to me, on factual grounds, simply is not the case. And what it also um, evokes in most people's mind, when if you tell your friends and colleagues who are not historians that you are a historian, they usually think of as a professor. Mm-hmm. Well, it, turn, it turns out, and being a professor is a noble occupation. You are one. I have been one. Um, but... Um, it's now the case that at least 50% of the young people who are getting their PhDs in history in the United States now are not, for either by choice or by necessity, going into academic jobs. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are serving as historians elsewhere. In the profession, say, of, as we call it in ugly term, museology, in museums, they are in government um, they are sometimes serving in law firms. Some of them are independent consultants who put out a shingle in effect and serve as historians for anybody who wishes to remunerate them for doing so. And there are a number of very well-established and successful businesses that have been put together by historians. There are historians who make films. 
there are historians who have never taught uh, a sentence in a college or university, but who write works of history, and so on. So they're all historians defined as members and pursuants in the discipline of history, but they are serving as historians in different occupations and professions. And it's a distinction that's very important to make today when more and more history is being done outside of college and university walls. And it's important not only to recognize that brute fact, but it's also important, in my view, so that it can begin to redistribute the the um, the, the honor and the awards and the elected offices and so on that are distributed among historians um, in a whole number of institutions and by a whole number of institutions. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just just facts require us to make that distinction. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm with you, but do you think that most history professors would uh, would agree with what you've just said about? Um, well, for, first of all, they they have uh, brushed me off in some cases <laughs> by by saying by saying, "Oh, we know what you mean. We agree with you." But let's call it the history profession. Well, I don't give up a fight like that. Yeah. Um, I think that most of them would agree with me when we had this kind of a conversation. Now, I find it myself very difficult to refer to the history discipline because I've been calling it the history profession for 35 or 40 years myself. Yeah, it's tough. Um, so, so it's just sort of a habit. And I think if we're going to tell the history of the discipline better than we do, and if we're to, to, to tell that history, to write that history, to tell people about the history of history in the United States and the Western world, um, that history has to include historians who have not been academics mm-hmm. because there have always been historians who have not been academics, and there have always been historians like myself who are, as I think I called myself when we opened this uh, interview, a hybrid historian. Um, I've been an academic and a what's called now a public historian. I have, while being while being outside academic walls, I've taught courses. When I was uh, on the Princeton History faculty, I did things outside of the academy. So I'm happy to call myself just a plain old historian and be proud of it. It's funny. That's what I do, too. People say, you're a Russian historian. And I say, well, I'm a historian. And people say, well, you're a professor. So we're a historian. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a historian of Russia. Yeah, no, you happen true. to hold a professorial appointment. Yeah. So both of those are correct. But you are more than that, of yeah, course. I, li- I, like, sure. I, like, I like to think so. But I want to go back to one point you made. And it's a, it's a little bit controversial. You hear a lot of different opinions about it. I, I, and I think some history will be required. And I hope you can give it to us. Um, uh, it wasn't until... Uh, pretty recently, and I mean recently in historical times, the last, say, uh, 30 or 40 years, that there were a lot more people getting PhDs than there were positions in the academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in a sense, then, one might say that the uh, large number of people who are historians but who are and hold PhDs uh, but who are not in the academy is the result of a kind of accident. Well, it is uh, recently. Um, but let me say before I answer your question or or, or, or respond to your push um, that um, there were always historians in the United States and elsewhere who were operating outside mm-hmm. of the academy. Um, but the first um, recent and institutionalized push for what we now call public history arose at the time of the first uh, great employment crisis for historians and people in the humanities and related social sciences around the year uh, uh, 1970. Mm -hmm. And um, because it was so difficult to get our graduate students jobs, and um, boy, I I remember those days um, trying to find um, positions for which I had helped prepare my graduate students in the academy. It was just wickedly difficult and terribly saddening to see some of these careers thwarted. And some historians... Uh, starting at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Carnegie Mellon University, uh, began trying to prepare historians to be historians outside the academy. And there thus grew up uh, some programs uh, um, in the history departments of those two universities and then others. Um, There grew up an institution, the National Council on Public History. There emerged a journal called The Public Historian, and there there grew up a, an increasingly large number of historians who were prepared for 
and entering occupations outside of the academic profession. Mm -hmm. They'd always been there. They'd always been in government, for example. But the very fact that it was defined this way now gave those people a chance to come out of the woodwork and to join together with other historians who were not in the academy to develop protocols, to develop um, codes of ethics, um, to give each other courage, um, to learn techniques and practices and approaches from each other. And some of these had a spillover effect um, on, um, on academic history because um, the academic history historians began to recognize that some of these public historians were really innovating and venturing into new territory, and they, the academics, could learn a lot from them. And um, so for the last 40 years, really, um, we've had public history and public history well-organized institutionally. And it's been... Um, a great saving um, grace in the last 10 years or so when, once again, uh, there are fewer academic jobs for historians than there are historians getting their PhDs. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not the way the American labor market, say, in the steel industry works. There, there's usually a balance fairly quickly um, uh, achieved between the labor that's needed and the labor that's employed much harder to do in the academic uh, preparatory world. And look, if a student comes in and says that she wants to uh, study uh, Russian history with you, uh, your department is likely to say yes, rather than no, there are no jobs for you, go elsewhere. Um, and so we once again today have an oversupply, but fortunately there is this huge set of occupations that we call public history that's available um, for these people to serve as historians. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about that huge set of, uh, of occupations, I want to say that, um, and this is a, a friendly observation, in my experience in graduate school, which was uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, I didn't receive uh, any training uh, to do anything other than be a professor, nor did I know anyone who did. Well, of course, and yeah. you, you think you think I did in 1960. No, I'm sure you didn't. Uh, yeah. Of course not, and still at the at the, the 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 highly the most highly reputed departments. Let's just say Harvard and Michigan and Princeton and Yale and Stanford and Berkeley and so on. Um, that's the way it still is, much to my regret. If public history is taught there, it's taught by people who teach public history and um, don't do much else. And the, the people who uh, who teach other histories to other kinds of people could sort of therefore wash their hands of the business. Public history is for someone else to instruct my students in. And I think that's one of the issues that I address in, uh, in the book, Being a Historian, um, namely that of all historians who are on graduate school faculties now have a responsibility, and I think it's an ethical responsibility, to become public historians um, themselves and to integrate uh, the preparation of young people to be in government and museums and so on as much as they have long taught uh, these uh, these young people how to do research and how to teach and how to be academics. Mm -hmm. I mean, I agree with you completely, but how? I guess, again, this is another friendly question. How, how are we going to start doing that when the people that then replace their advisors have no experience in this whatsoever? I mean, I look at the faculty here at Iowa, and, you know, they're great people. It's the best department I ever taught in. They're brilliant scholars. Um, I don't – I mean, I could be wrong here – but I don't know how many of them have any experience in what we might call the real world. Well, um, I hate that term, but yeah, I, I, don't like I, either, I, won't, but I won't argue that one with yeah, you for the moment. Which, Maybe let, some let other me, time. Yeah, let, oh. me, let me say what I mean by that, and that is mm -hmm. that they haven't worked in corporations, they haven't worked in government, they've never taught high school, although I can think of one instance in which somebody did teach high school. They've never worked in a museum. Um, they don't, they don't know right. anything about this. That's right. And, um, but of course the academic world is as much a real world as any of those other worlds. That's true enough. Um, they haven't done that, um, and nor had I. And, well, that's not entirely true because some of your colleagues, you yourself, have done, uh, things outside the academy, but you've always been able to return to your professorial mm -hmm. position. Mm -hmm. You've not been launched on the somewhat more risky world of no tenure and doing other things in, in, in institutions that are more hierarchical. Mm -hmm. um, and that is risky, and it's not to some people's dispositions, and so they probably shouldn't be there. 
Um, but how are we going to get your colleagues and um, all of our colleagues across the length and breadth of the land to change? Well, number one, I hope they'll read my book. <laughs> uh, but but number number two, I think we just have to keep talking about it. I think younger people are far better prepared to take that leap and to be uh, more flexible, uh, both as historians and as teachers of historians to be than um, people my age and, and probably people your age were. But I think we just have to keep yakking about it, and we have to keep encouraging departments and um, historians to become knowledgeable and cognizant of the larger professional world around them and get them to take some risks and go off campus and do some things as historians um, themselves. Yeah, well, we do have people that do that here at Iowa. I say we're pretty good at that. Of course you do. Every department does, of course. We have a lot of people that will go around, and there's a lot of uh, outreach here, and I think it's really terrific, and the state supports it, which is very good. Well, let me me give you two examples of of my own academic career at Princeton. I had two. uh, Every of my colleagues uh, was extraordinary, and, 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 and many of them my dear friends, and I honor them all. Two of them, now uh, long deceased, were Joseph Strayer and Eric Goldman. Eric served in Lyndon Johnson's White House, and to be sure, that was a difficult task, and toward the end of Johnson's presidency, it was, to some degree, to many Americans, a dishonorable task. But Eric had this extraordinary experience in the White House. He came back to campus, and as far as I could tell, no one in the history department asked him to talk to students and to themselves as to what it had been like to be a historian in the White House. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was just, to me now, when I think about it, I shudder. My other colleague, Joe Strayer, was one of the country's great medievalists. He was a historian of the national state in medieval times. Joe was long an advisor to the CIA and had served in the OSS, the CIA's predecessor, um, during the Second World War. No one ever knew that Joe had done that. Mm. I mean, his colleagues sort of knew about it, but he didn't talk about it. He was a very modest man. No one, none of the graduate students knew of this background and could go to him and say, Professor Strayer, tell me what it was like to be a historian in the government. Tell me what what use a historian would be in the CIA. You know, and so his, his experience, his knowledge of this was just lost to his colleagues and his students. And, mm-hmm. and uh, that always made me terribly sad, and I think that's been the case for a long time. Yeah. No, I see just what you mean, and I was director of undergraduate studies here in the History Department of Iowa for, I guess, four years, and I spent a lot of time with students explaining to them and their parents Mm-hmm. what their historical training was going to do for them in occupations other than high school history mm-hmm. teacher. Uh, yeah, really, and, and when the thing about it is, is I realized that, you know, in terms of uh, simple um, effect or payoff, this was the most important thing I was doing because I had them in my office and I was saying, look, you know, you don't have to be a history teacher if you don't want to be. You could go work in Washington. And I sent a lot of them to Washington on internship programs. They had never really conceived of this. And this might have to do with the insularity of the Midwest. I don't know. I'm a native Midwesterner. And I certainly didn't know about any of this when I grew up. But um, I think more generally that it, it, is, it is precisely in the advising and career advising that our discipline it does a very, very, very poor job. I think you're right, and of course that's because most of the people who have the position that you had in your department uh, have never had those experiences themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Of course. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, and I think, that, I think this is made particularly intense. This gets us in, going in another direction, and I think we probably shouldn't pursue this. Mm-hmm. But this is particularly so in an era in which there is no draft. And so... People go from school to college to graduate school into professorships or into being historians in the federal government, and they have never uh, served with uh, people whom they uh, don't have much in common with. They've never uh, been ordered about in basic training in an officer's candidate school. Mm-hmm. They've never. Um, they, they 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 have a kind of linear um, life, and um, it's not marred by. Uh, occupational diversity, and mm-hmm. so they themselves just don't know very much. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I know just what you mean. And again, I, I do know historians. I can think of at least one here, you know, who was a high school teacher before she 
um, started on the academic road. I think she benefited greatly from that. I know other people that have done similar sorts of things or come from consulting or lots of different backgrounds to, to do this sort of work. And I, I guess I have to think that those people have a richer sort of experience. And I wish, as you say, that experience could be shared with um, history novices as they think about what they're going to do with the skill set we give them. Absolutely. I think it's critical. But having said that, let me also say that there has to be a place for the most esoteric historian, <laughs> yeah. esoteric sociologist, physicist, and so on, to squirrel away and do brilliant research in the bowels of a library unmolested by public events. Yeah. And we, would, we do not ask biologists and physicists to publish their work on the pages of Parade magazine. No, we don't. And we can't ask all historians to do that either. Nope. There have to be some who are recondite scholars um, and are working on subjects that become the building blocks for synthesis that uh, our uh, fellow citizens can read and read with great pleasure, but who never poke their nose uh, much outside. Mm -hmm. And um, we have to have a protected space for people like that. Yeah. Well, we've covered a little bit of the ground of the, the next question I was going to um, ask, and that is about the state of the historical disciplines today. But, but um, I, I want to move on to the sort of second part of the question I prepared, and that is what is being done right now to improve that, to pursue the agenda that you are talking about after having critiqued the way things are at present? Well, uh, th there is some... Um, my, my book, while distinctive, is not the only work of this kind that can be identified as books that, and, and articles, of course, that can serve to alert uh, other historians as to what is and what might be. Um, I think that slowly um, all of us, and again, particularly younger people, are, uh, are fully awake, are becoming fully awake to the need to more richly prepare our graduate students for life as historians. Um, and the institutions are beginning to shift in that regard, and the people who are responsible for running those institutions um, are beginning to not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. And um, I could, I could, I suppose, give you some examples. They're not going to be um, ones that would have much resonance, I think, uh, among um, uh, non-historians. Um, uh, but I'm encouraged by the change that's uh, taking place among historians and their institutions. It's a little bit osmotic. It, it happens, happens a little bit indirectly and out of sight and too slowly for my uh, temperament. Um, but it is happening, and that's why I'm basically very optimistic about the discipline of history. Mm -hmm. I think you're a little bit more optimistic than I am. but um, Well, I think I'm more optimistic than uh, a lot of historians, um, and we have reason to be pessimistic. I mean, if, for example, we're going to measure um, our success uh, by the historical knowledge that our fellow citizens have or the way in which histori history, historical knowledge and facts are used by public and political figures, then I think sometimes we have reason to despair. But if we're talking about the discipline itself and how it's adapting to new circumstances and how its students are and young people are, then I don't think we have any reason to despair. No, I think that's right. I, I agree with you. The material is there, and I think the intentions are good. I don't know if there is a mechanism to bring that material uh, armed with those intentions into uh, a new set of institutions. Um, I think a lot of people are working outside the academy, and I'm one of them, uh, to at least disseminate historical material in a new way so it reaches more people. I know a lot well, of people well, well, exactly. And, and one of the things that I would love to, um, to, 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 to elicit, uh, to, to bring about, and I know that you would too, would be sort of an, a new kind of entrepreneurship among historians to develop new practices um, and new institutions that would, uh, new projects, say, and I've done this, a lot of this myself, as mm -hmm. you have, um, that will do two things. One will increase the um, amount of historical knowledge that we gain and have available to us as people, and second, will carry this knowledge more effectively than is now the case, although it's more effective than it was before, uh, and more effectively to the general public and to anyone who wants to learn anything in any form about the past. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I can tell you that is the project that I'm most interested in right now. I, I agree with you uh, in terms of 
the, the sort of poverty of history um, advising. That, that's not the issue I'm working on right now. I worked on it for four years and it sort of wore me out. Uh, but right now I'm interested in problems of dissemination. Um, well, yeah. look what you're doing. Look what you're doing with this very program. Right. We're talking, uh, this, this interview, well, precisely. I mean, and, and yeah. you and I both have done that kind of thing. I did it with the History News Service, uh-huh. which turned out to be a very effective op-ed syndicate of historians yeah. that offered op-ed pieces free to uh, to newspapers across the country, and lots of these were run in, in small and, and and large metropolitan newspapers. Yeah, no, no. no and I, I want to encourage, and you do too. Want to encourage our colleagues to do more of that kind of venturesomeness and to see what uh, we can do and see what will catch on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's go on to this, uh, what I think will be a very interesting uh, topic to many people who listen to this podcast, and that is the, the I guess it's third or fourth chapter of the book, I can't recall, it's the third chapter, um, A Multitude of Opportunities, you call it. That is opportunities for people with historical training. Can you um, talk about those a little bit? Well, yes, uh, but I think I've said... Um, something already, um, and that is um, what I have in mind there is that historians are not, uh, there's no need for them to be immured in library and classroom walls. Um, they uh, they can serve as they do um, in the, uh, for the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the American military forces. Mm-hmm. I have a colleague and dear friend who was the head of the Air Force Office of History, and he claimed, and there was no way that I could, <laughs> could contrary to the fact, he claimed that it was the largest history department in the world. Really? The Air Force, well, the Air Force has employed historians here in Washington, and it has employed historians in all of the commands mm-hmm. of the Air Force and, and, and uh, you know, around the world. But it also has wing historians, so that when someone comes back from some combat sortie over Iraq, say, Someone is, is, is detailed to write a report of it, um, as rich a report as it can be, and it goes into the archives to be used by, by tacticians and strategists in the future. Mm-hmm. Their history is considered to be very, very useful. Mm-hmm. Now, there are also historians that, uh, there was a historian who's now moved back to the academy who worked in the American Bar Association office in Chicago. Um, there are historians, of course, who run and work in museums. The 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 uh, wouldn't be surprising to to for your listeners to know that the uh, head of the still to be built uh, Museum of African American History and Culture here on the Mall is a historian, mm-hmm. and uh, but he's not serving now as a researcher or a teacher. He is raising money, and he's building an institution. Mm-hmm. But, of course, he knows the history of the subject around which that museum is going to revolve. Mm-hmm. And so it's absolutely critical that a historian run that. Mm-hmm. And thus we go. I mean, there are positions all over. I have, uh, I, um, uh, you and I have colleagues, uh, most of them are academics, to be sure, but who have made films mm-hmm. and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And, of course, then there are people like David McCulloch, who has never been on a faculty, doesn't have a Ph.D., but serves as a historian in the books he writes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have a friend who is a historian at the State Department, mm-hmm. and they have a large set of historians there. They, they do, and they produce um, volumes, um, um, many volumes a year, um, uh, which are the records of the, uh, the, the diplomacy of the United States from 1789. Um, it's about 30 years in arrears always. Um, but these are extraordinarily useful volumes. They're useful for policymakers. They're useful for historians. They're useful for people in other nations. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are serving as historians. They're doing historical research. They're editing the documents. They're making certain they're accurate. They're writing essays about them. Um, but they're critical. They're considered to be important and critical to the national well-being. Yes, I've seen these, uh, and they go by an acronym, if I recall, FRUS, F-R-U-S, the Foreign Relations That's of the United right. States. That's right. Exactly. And they're green volumes. They are green volumes. They're not... They're not they're they're not very nicely they're not very good looking books but yeah. they are just packed with very important yeah. stuff. Yeah, they're pretty incredible. I mean, honestly, in terms of like a scholarly product of great duration and value, it's got to rank up there with the OED and stuff because it, oh, it does it's absolutely. A, it's just an amazing thing to see them Precisely. all on a shelf. It's, it's mm-hmm. astounding. So yeah, there, the, those are opportunities. Kind of, I guess they're they're people that would they are the people that get those uh, jobs are, are historians, but then there are historians who. 
who go out and they do uh, things that don't have anything to do with history. Occasionally you'll see boards following them at departments, like, you know, this famous football coach studied history. And I know that a lot of my students go into, uh, well, they go into business. They go work for yeah, corporations. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought uh, the question around in this way. When I have been talking about historians, and perhaps you and I should have made this clear at the beginning of the interview, I had in mind professional historians. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand that. I was not talking about history majors. Mm-hmm, yeah. Now, they're different, of course. There are people all over the same way. There are people um, in, in, uh, who are coaching a football and basketball who were physics majors mm-hmm. or who were English majors or were psychology majors. Um, and that's uh, you and I, and I would like everyone to believe in the fact that collegians should not be studying a professional matters or counting or business or so on. They should be stocking their mind with knowledge and experience and new ideas and new ways of looking at the world until they graduate as seniors. Now, in, in, in a world in which one has to make money, as you and I have had to do our lives, uh, you can't quite, you can't be, um, quite so calm and collected about how your child or how yourself is going to go off and make money. Mm-hmm. And you, it's harder, much harder to make money as a historian, as a history major. Um, than it is if you're a business major, but historians go into business, and if they're smart people, um, they bring their history knowledge to bear. And even if they don't, they can be terrifically good history. Uh, I mean, a businessman and, and business women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I've had I've had a lot of experience with this because I, you know, having worked in a corporation myself, I met many people. Who That's had right, of course. Humanities degrees who, you know, they didn't really have a lot of technical competency, uh, and they were required to have some, but they got it pretty quickly uh, because they knew how to learn and they knew how to do research. I mean, that I tell my students this: that really, what I'm teaching you how to do. Sure, you're going to have a general store of facts that's going to enable you to contextualize all kinds of things that you read in uh, the New York Times, but you're also going to have a skill set which, if you follow my lead, is going to be of great value, I think, in, in a lot of different uh, 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 endeavors. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right, but I would go on also to point out that historians think differently than attorneys, who think differently than physicists, who think differently than sociologists. Mm -hmm. So that um, you were picking and choosing to be introduced as an undergraduate major uh, among different ways to think, none of which are better or less good than the others. Mm -hmm. They just happen to be different. I mean, try, for example, read a book of history and then ask someone to read a legal brief. uh, Attorneys, judges and attorneys, they reason in a different way. Mm-hmm. They use evidence in a different way. Their citations are the different kinds of things used in a different way. And so what at least history majors are learning is how to think historically and how to put together historical arguments. That doesn't prepare them to be physicists, and it doesn't prepare them to be surgeons. Mm-mm. But it teaches them one way to think, and, of course, it helps to stock their minds with knowledge about the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I had a friend. He's actually an old basketball buddy of mine. This is years ago now who was a history major, and then uh, he, I don't know if he still does this, I don't think he does, but for a long time he uh, did research on cold cases for the police. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they would hand him the stack of cold cases, and they would say, look through this material, analyze it, and tell Isn't us whether it is worth going forward. And these were uh, these were cases about the past. Yeah, they were, you know, some of them were 10 years old. Surely. And, and, and so they said, you know, try to figure out for us whether we should spend any resources on this. And he said yeah, it was a fascinating okay. job. He got to interview yeah. people, and it was a whole... Yeah. Well, know. let me tell you an analogous story. I happen to be talking for the first time in probably 40 years with a former undergraduate student of mine just a week ago. And he had been reminded of me because he was reading something and up popped my name. And so he called. He found me. And he called me. What was he reading? He was reading one of the most difficult, demanding um, works on the history of slavery in the Western world by David Bryan Davis. Mm -hmm. And he's an attorney, this man, and a businessman. But he was a history major. And he's retained his love of history to the point where he reads really serious works of history. They're certainly readable by normal people, but they're demanding works. They're not light. They're not... They're not love letters to John Adams, like David McCulloch's biography mm-hmm. of John Adams. They really are analytical, and they require attentiveness, and not late at night. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, but it was the love of history that had been instilled in him as an undergraduate that he's carried forward into his adulthood, and he's now in his 60s. Mm-hmm. I think he is uh, most of the audience of New Books in History.
to be honest with you. It's people well, like I, that. I, I, I hope so, and I hope that they can draw their friends who aren't like that into the world yeah. of the past. I, I, I hope so, too. So you uh, have a chapter that describes the duties uh, of – we're turning here to academic historians. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? I don't know. I, when, again, when I was in graduate school, I didn't receive a class on the duties of – Academic historians. No, well, of course not, because you were being trained to be like the person at the front of all of the classrooms that you were in as you were taking courses. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you got into graduate school, not very long thereafter, you were told that once you became an academic, you were measured against three things and three standards, and they're what I call the academic trinity. the (laughs) the The quality of your research. Okay, that's that's number one, and number two was the your ability to teach other people, usually younger than yourself, and the third was on the kind of service you performed for your department or your university, or perhaps for your professional world in its institutions, and this was a triune presence of the graduate school aspiration. You were going to become an academic. We've already talked about that uh, today. Um, you're going to become an academic, and for that you have to learn something about research, about teaching, I mean research and writing, about teaching, and about service. And that's what all academics still expect to be involved in. They're certainly teaching, they're certainly doing research and writing in their chosen fields and their specialties, and they also are called upon to help run their departments in their university to serve on committees, to help hire um, new uh, members of the department, um, to run the department to be the undergraduate advisor or the graduate advisor, as you have been, uh, maybe to exceed to dean or to become president of a college or university, as historians, of course, have long done, and probably in greater number than most others, uh, people in other disciplines. And, and so we academics internalize that. But as I say in my book, and I, this is a rather um, uh, insular concern, um, we're prepared certainly to do research very well. I mean, in that, the American universities are uh, in wonderful shape and are as good as any in the world. Uh, we're taught, and increasingly better, we're taught how to teach, particularly undergraduates. Uh, the, 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 the ideal of service goes completely by the boards. No one ever talks about it. No one knows what it means. And no one knows what's expected of you. You're expected to do all these things, but you're not rewarded for it. Mm-hmm. You're not prepared, and you and I both know that there are some people who run departments and head committees and so on who are just terrible at the job um, because they're never um, exposed to how they might think about it, and they consider it to be of minor importance and um, to, to research and teaching and so on. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that this book uh, goads its readers into thinking a little bit more deeply and uh, in, intensively about the service ideal and, in fact, um, and would get uh, colleges and universities generally to try to clarify what it means uh, to um, to serve those institutions. Mm-hmm. I don't think that most people, and I'm certain most students, have, have any idea at all what uh, professional historians actually do. I mean, I've asked you, you my mean, students. You mean before. undergraduate students? Undergraduates, yes. Well, they I mean, do. They, they they know that you're uh, that that we're professors, but they, beyond that, they don't. That's yeah. right. They're absolutely right. And I think it behooves departments also, when they're talking to history majors, is to talk to them about all the other things they can do outside the academy. Yeah, and they also, I mean, it's interesting because they also don't know how you got to the place where you are. They, they don't know anything about. At least this is. It may not be true at Princeton, but it's definitely true at Iowa that. They don't. They don't know anything about graduate training. They don't know anything about dissertations. They don't really are know you, very much. Are you about talking about? You're talking about the undergraduates. Undergraduates, yes. Undergraduates. Yes. They don't know what services. They they really don't have a good impression of um, how we're trained to teach or whether we're trained to teach. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's uh, of of much interest to those who are not thinking about being professional historians. But you start with the history majors, and among those, there are always going to be a few at any college or university who want to be historians as professionals. Those are the ones who I think it's incumbent upon to teach about what it is to be an academic and what it is to be a historian mm-hmm. considered mm-hmm. in the largest sense. That's what we've been talking about. Yeah. I usually and those tell are the them, ones yeah. I'd focus on. Yeah, I usually I tell them I tell them a little bit about the profession before I start. At least I try to kind of bleed some knowledge well, in between the, 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 the sentences that I say about Russia or something. Well, I'd like to know what proportion of our colleagues who advise undergraduates do that. 
it, it may be very high, and I'm, I'm not at all mm-hmm. cynical about it, but I simply don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't and of know. course, the American Historical Association doesn't offer any training in how to do this. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that completely. So we're almost out of time, and we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, and uh, I want to actually ask you two more questions. One's our traditional final question, but before we uh, uh, before we discuss that, I want to ask you a kind of a broad question. Mm-hmm. Um, it, is it a good time to become a historian today? I mean, if you were talking to somebody, a pretty bright student, thinking about graduate school in history, what would you tell them? I'd say that if you have the fire in the belly to spend your life thinking about, teaching about, being immersed in portions of the past, do it. If you don't have the fire in the belly, then try it out, but you can try out other things too. Mm-hmm. In other words, because of the employment situation in the academy, if you want to be a professor, you've got to have a fire in the belly because there may not be a position for you at the end of the road. Mm-hmm. If you want to be a historian, there are many more positions, however. Inform yourself about those and then go for it. Mm-hmm. I think that that's excellent advice. That's basically the advice I would give. So uh, let me uh, thank you for being on the show and ask our traditional final question, and that is what are you up to now? What are you working on? Well, I've started a book on revisionist history, what it is, how it came to be, um, what it means, why all historians are revisionist historians today. It came about possibly as only something like this could come about in the nation's capital. I found myself in the chambers a few years ago of Justice Clarence Thomas, and he told me he was reading he was spending the summer reading the history of slavery, and I, we entered into a conversation. I said, it's terrific. And he told me he's reading this, that, and the other person, but he's not reading the revisionists. Mm-hmm. And if a man in that position and of that liveliness of mind and so on didn't know what revisionist history is, uh, there's certainly many other people who don't. So I'm, it's, there's no such book like it in the literature, and I'm having some fun because it takes me back to Herodotus and Thucydides. Yeah, well, it sounds like a great project. It really does. I'd, I'd like to, well, I have lots of questions about it, actually. Um, but again, uh, let me thank you. We've been talking with Jim uh, Boehner about his book, uh, Being a Historian, an Introduction to the Professional uh, World of History. It's a terrific book. Go out and buy it. You'll learn a lot. Jim, thanks for being on the show. Wonderful to be here with you, Marshall. Okay, take care. We've been talking with James Banner, the author of Being a Historian, An Introduction to the Professional World of History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.